Season 4, Episode 11, Acolino Gonell. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to the ongoing threat to electoral democracy in the wake of the January 6th attack. I'm Scott Kuhn. Presently, all the news in the world of January 6th and the ongoing threat to electoral democracy is focused around Trump's various court cases. Um, there's the rejection of his claim of absolute immunity by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, that is the I Am a King case, uh, which may or may not go to the Court of Appeals in Bank, or may be heard by the Supreme Court, or may be rejected altogether. And also, there is the case that has already had oral arguments before the Supreme Court regarding Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which would be the case in which Colorado voters seek to disqualify Trump from the Colorado ballot on the basis of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which basically says that you cannot run for president or serve as president if you are an insurrectionist. So there are many fine people doing a lot of great work in this area, doing analysis of all these legal cases, all the legal reasoning. I will leave that to them for the moment. We all know what's happening. Trump is trying to delay, 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 delay all consequences until it's so late that he will then argue that you cannot have a case ongoing, a criminal case, for a candidate for president, and so you have to wait until after the voters decide. And that is what he's going to try to do, and then get sworn in, pardon himself, pardon the cronies, pardon everyone who attacked the Capitol, pardon all the proud keepers, the Oath Boys, and everyone else uh, who he conspired with. So that's not really news, in a sense. That is, in fact, what's happening right now, and while we are going to be, you know, looking at that, I suspect, in future episodes. Also, there have been a lot of uh, recent arrests of people who have uh, had been identified some time ago, and who were quite prominent in the January 6th attack. I will save that for a future episode, because I'm very happy in this episode to turn away from, in a sense, all this news about Trump and his delay tactics, his stall tactics that he's currently engaged with, and focus on one of the heroes of January 6th, uh, that is to say, Sergeant Aquilino Gunnell. Sergeant Goodell, of course, was one of the officers who testified um, on January 27th, Tuesday, January 27th, 2021, in um, the very first hearing of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. He was joined by Officer Hodges, uh, Harry Dunn, um, Michael Fanone uh, from the USCP, sorry, Fanone of the MPD, um, also Hodges, also MPD, Dunn, of course, um, U.S. Capitol Police, um, and later on uh, in a subsequent uh, hearing, Caroline Edwards, of course, who was, uh, in a sense, one of the officers who was serving at Peace Circle, and in fact was uh, pushed down by Ryan Samsel in uh, basically the first act of physical violence on January 6th. So I'm um, very pleased to have uh, Aquilino Gunnell on the show. Of course, um, highly recommend his book, American Shield, published this past December, and from Counterpoint Press. Um, I will put a link to his publisher in the show notes. He has also published a Spanish-language version, which he has uh, uh, 
basically done most of the translation work on himself. I will also put that into the show notes. Those will be the first two links in the show notes. I will also link to the uh, fundraiser for the Capitol Police Memorial Fund. Um, of course, Sergeant Gunnell led a uh, civil disturbance unit team on January 6th, was personally involved in repulsing the rioters, especially at the, the western side of the Capitol, and was very much involved in the fiercest fighting of the day in the uh, lower west terrace tunnel. Um, it was assaulted by, it's estimated, 40, possibly more defendants, well, suspects, not all of whom have been charged. Uh, to date, hopefully that will, will happen. Hopefully they will all be identified and charged, and all the ones who have been identified will be charged. Um, medically retired from the Capitol Police, unfortunately, due to the injuries he sustained on that day. And so I'm very pleased to have him on the show to talk about his book, which uh, I rather enjoyed quite a bit. Um, first two-thirds of the book is autobiographical, and it really tells the kind of story that I think all Americans should get behind. It's, it's the kind of story that all Americans used to get behind. Uh, it's a story of a young immigrant who was brought here um, to join his family, to join his father, his brother, and his mother, came to New York City, and um, the story of growing up under quite adverse circumstances and how he went on to serve uh, as a, a soldier in Iraq and later, of course, on the U.S. Capitol Police, uh, ultimately, of course, on January 6th, where he sustained injuries that ultimately would end his law enforcement career. So I want to thank uh, Sergeant Gunnell for appearing. Remember, there are links to uh, both the English language and Spanish language versions of his book in the show notes. Do go out, buy that, as he says at the very end. Buy it for your Republican friends. Uh, you know what? People have birthdays coming up. Be a great gift for the 4th of July. I know we don't give 4th of July gifts, but it would be highly appropriate for uh, people uh, who need to see the story. And I think uh, a lot of Americans do need to read about his story. Uh, it's a story of heroism, of overcoming adversity, and it's a very frank and honest discussion of his experiences in the military and in law enforcement. So do pick that up. So without further ado, uh, here's our interview with Sergeant Gunnell. And we're here with our very special guest, Sergeant Gonell from the U.S. Capitol Police. Uh, Sergeant Gonell, welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report. Uh, thank you for having me, Scott. And uh, that will be former Sergeant Gonell, um, no longer with the Capitol Police. Uh, uh, not by but, choice, not by choice, but you know it is what it is. Um, so here we go. <laughs> Yeah, you were you were medically retired as as a consequence of of your wounds, um, and um, that is obviously tragic when a, a career is is ended too short. Um, I guess we're mainly probably here to to talk about your book American Shield, uh, which I I enjoyed immensely. Um, about how long did it take you to write it? Uh, roughly about six months uh, altogether, but you know. Uh, when I began, uh, it was kind of like a deadline going on. Uh, it took a while, uh, I mean, six, about six months, but the process to publish it, it takes about a year, year and a half. But we were done uh, within a couple of months. Uh, it was hard months because I was still 
uh, not only recovering from my physical injury, but also for uh, the mental health uh, side, which is uh, something that is still ongoing for me, uh, given the circumstances that uh, some of the very uh, uh, elected officials that were running for the lives on January 6th, now they're sided uh, with the uh, with a lie and also with the foreign president going uh, going along with whatever he says uh, about the, the horrible day uh, on my end. Maybe it was beautiful on their side, but um, for, for me and my colleagues, uh, it was uh, very dangerous. It was a very uh, uh, chaotic and to the point that we risk our lives to defend them uh, while they were behind us, uh, without with, with our protections, um, now they're uh, and, and we fall for uh, very hard, putting our lives and limbs on uh, in harm's way. Now that they uh, contort themselves in a way that desecrate the sacrifices that we did on that day. And I, I want to thank you so much for that. Um... Uh, the book itself is really, it's a very interesting document because it's not just about January 6th. And uh, for me, the one of the best parts of the book is the autobiographical, probably two-thirds of the first part of the book, goes into who you are and describes your, your history um, as a New Yorker, as a soldier. Um, and and I really uh, was left me far more impressed um, than just, you know, the, the January 6th stuff, which, of course, um, is, you know, this is going to be a historical document I think people are going to read in future generations. Um, so it kind of begins when you move to New York at the age of uh, 12, and your father brings you and your brother and your mother up from the Dominican Republic. Um, one of the curious things to me was reading this, was why do you think he decided to do that, and especially to leave your your half brothers, so your half siblings at home? I mean, uh, the book itself, uh, American Shoe, it has a lot of layers uh, of not only about, like you said, about uh, come arriving here to the United States, but it also has the assimilation uh, assimilation component, uh, being uh, a good. Uh, person in in a chaotic neighborhood, um, you know, having a relationship with not only with my parents but uh, with my siblings, with some friends as well in school. The struggle that I, the, the typical immigrant, newly arrived immigrant, uh, faces here in the United States, and 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 then making uh, good choices to put you in a situation where. Uh, you're not going to be become a burden to the system like the uh, many Republican uh, legislative officials say that we are. Um, if you look at uh, most of the criteria that the Republican elected officials claim to want in a Im typical immigrant, um, I have met them. Uh, I had come to the United States without learning, not knowing the language. I learned the language. I assimilated. I became a productive member of society. I joined the military. I joined the going. I went to a war uh, defending this country. I returned 
completing my education. Um, then I, to, to continue my public servants, service, I joined the police uh, uh, department. So it has been ongoing for me to be a better person, be a better immigrant. But to answer your question in terms of uh, how, why did my father uh, brought us here? I mean, it's uh, he had been here since, uh, I believe, 83, 1983. So he wanted our family to be together, be a family again. Uh, now, during those early years, uh, since I arrived here in the United States, uh, I mean, our relationship were was on and off uh, in a good terms. Uh, two weeks after I arrived here, uh, that he brought us here, he made a lot of sacrifices to to bring us here, bring us here uh, to the point of borrowing money from money that they, they didn't have. And then once we got here, then uh, two weeks later, he he get it. Uh, shot in on, on the arm and, uh, you know, have, because the neighborhood was in that gray at that time. Uh, but, you know, nevertheless, that did not deter us from uh, continuing to become a better person. Uh, I, I thank my father for, for, for bringing me here, but it was not easy because I struggle a lot in terms of uh, adjusting to this new country, the new culture, the language, uh, there was uh, rampant uh, violence uh, and, and robbery, uh, a lot of gangs uh, in my neighborhood at that time, you know, but uh, I'm just glad that I made the right choices and stay out of trouble. And that's part of what's really inspiring about the book is that there's so much adversity you overcome. Your family is a victim of crime. Um, and it's, a, as you said, uh, over, you know, learning English. Especially people think children learn it e easily, but when you're 12, it's a lot harder than when you're six, you yeah. know, and, um, and it's really remarkable. And, and for me, I, I think you're reading it. You mentioned you graduated high school a year late and that you felt like you missed a lot of milestones. But I read the book and I see a young man who's given so much responsibility from an early age, particularly like to, to help earn money to support the family. Most 12 year olds, they're not doing that, right? So that's something you had to do. Most people don't have to do. Exactly. How many jobs exactly. were you working when you were a teenager? I can't even remember. There's so many. And that's the thing. Like I, even before I was, uh, I, I don't remember a, a time in my life that I was not doing something to help not only my family but my grandparents uh, since early age. I remember. Uh, I, I guess I, I the work ethic that my grandparents uh, instilled in me because both my mom, my mom and my dad, they were uh, separated early on. And each one, they, they had uh, their own lives and trying to provide for us in a different way. So my grandparents were the one taking care of me and on, to a point. And then I was sustaining myself, you know, doing things to care for my little siblings, which, you know, at 10 years old, here I am caring for my little brother and my my little sister, but to go back to 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 when I came back, uh, came here to the United States. Uh, I mean, uh, here I am doing car washing uh, uh, in New York, um, uh, being a mechanic, 
selling food. Uh, my my empanada, my mom is empanada door to door, uh, smelling like dough, which kind of like made me ashamed of myself, you know, of being poor, and also uh, uh, working at a, several bodegas, just trying to um, uh, earn some money, not only to help myself but to provide for my family back home. So we working twice as much. Uh, very hard, uh, you know, days were long. So I continue to do that even uh, even after arriving here in the United States. Uh, and, and you don't see that uh, nowadays, especially uh, his, another thing that I used to do was I used to go to the supermarkets and then help pack the pe people's uh, groceries and you know, just, just for a tip. Uh, just to, to so I could earn some money. I mean, I don't know if, where you live, but in New York, uh, it, it tends to be very hectic and people appreciate that and they sometimes give you a tip. Either you pack it or you take it to the car so they give you like a dollar or something uh, back then. Nowadays, you have kids that in, in order for you to uh, get them to do something, you have to bribe them, bribe them pretty much. And like, I'm going to turn off your your, your Wi-Fi or your internet, or let me take your phone away from you. Uh, you know, it's the same thing when we used to play, when we when we grew up, uh, before you used to have to tell, literally drag the kids into the house because you were spending too much outside, too much time outside. Now you had to literally kick them out and say, don't come back. If you come back in an hour or less, then you're not gonna have your phone. So go outside and play. So there's a lot of different different uh, times uh, that we grew up and different uh, generations. So it's, it's a lot harder uh, for uh, back then it was. You know, in some ways, you're making... I remember my childhood was the smell of dirt. <laughs> Playing in the dirt an awful lot. Um, yeah, maybe maybe I, I feel remiss because I perhaps my, my kids didn't do enough of that now everything is online like you say you know um gen x problems i guess with this younger generation i mean i call them generational wi-fi because they will they will know they will not know what to do a lot of things uh without their wi-fi so instead of being calling generation uh millennials or not i just call them generation wi-fi <laughs> yeah generation z that's that's good there was no generation Y, so that's that's right. It should be generation Wi-Fi. I think that's a that's a, a good coin term that you you coined. <laughs> um, so I mean, it's remarkable the adversity, and you, you graduate high school, and you find yourself, you decide that you're you're going to go to college, and you turn to the military as as a means to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it was a. Uh... Me joining the military, I think it was kind of like a three-fold uh, thing because when I did that, I, I wanted to uh, find a way to pay for my college. Two, I was having uh, my relationship with my dad was, wasn't that great. So, And then three, um, to to give something back to the, to, to the country that opens its arms for me. So it's a... Like I said, it was a three different reasons uh, for me to to do that. Um, you know, nevertheless, I was still committed to do whatever I needed to do to the point that when 9-11 uh, happened, I volunteered to defend this country. 
Uh, I wasn't picked right away, but eventually my my number was up, and uh, I deployed to Iraq. Uh, I would have much rather uh, have been called to serve to serve this country in defending Afghanistan rather than Iraq because uh, Afghanistan was a a necessary war rather than a, a war of choice, uh, like uh, the former uh, President Bush uh, uh, led us to into it. Nevertheless, I did my job, uh, regardless what, what that entails. And, you know, I had very, very difficult times when I was deployed, but it could have been worse. I survived a lot of things. I overcame a lot of adversity as well. Not only, you know, you know, people think that once you're in the military, you don't face some of those uh, adversities, but you do, um, you know, you know, racial, uh, just because you look different, uh, but they don't see that, they don't know that you are committed. And, and a lot of uh, people that join the military is because we like uh, the, this country, want to keep it, want to protect it as well. It's, it's remarkable that you were, you were in, you were uh, serving in the Army uh, Reserve at that point, the Reserve component, um, and then you know, 9-11 happens. And so really, uh, you were almost like ahead of the game as far as where the mood of the country was, was kind of going. And you talk about uh, this one incident when you had just arrived um, where you took casualties in the PX tent, or was it 80s? Or? Uh, no, it's called PX uh, at that time. It might be APHIS. Uh, I mean, they, they, there are different... I guess each brand call it differently. We uh, in the military, in the army, we call them PX. Uh, APHIS is kind of like a different, another convenience store that that usually is uh, within the base. Yeah, right. There's the there's the PX, the 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 BX, um, and it's just like it seems like nowhere is safe though in that sense, right? Because of yeah, a character you call Mortar Mike. Is that insurgents or? Yeah, there was an insurgent that uh, used to set up uh, kind of like an ice block, uh, and and you know, he will set it uh, the trigger that once the ice melts, then the trigger would would lob the the motor, and by the time it hit us, he was long gone. Uh, but or the other way was that he would just park his vehicle. Or drive his vehicle near the base and then just start shooting or throwing things at us. And by the time the quick reaction force uh, on our side would get to the area, he was long gone. So it's uh, very uh, dangerous at that time. You know, the other thing that were happening when I was there, we were the second wave of soldiers who re uh, replaced the initial soldiers uh, that came into country during the first. Uh, wave of, of the invasion. And um, by then, uh, the Iraqi military had been disbanded by the uh, um, provisional authority uh, with uh, John Brennan. Uh, you know, when you have 400,000 former military uh, that had lost everything, their per their, their pension and all stuff what that did was it made him join the the insurgent because now they they want reprisal they want 
revenge. Uh, you took my not only my career but my sustainability financially. And then you have uh, the other component, which was uh, Mokhtar Aksar. Um, he was uh, and is uh, very anti-American. Uh, kind of like there were kind of like two different faces of his uprising where uh, all the roles were black, meaning that convoys were uh, highly, very likely to get hit or ambush or attack. And uh, I did some some uh, uh, convoy missions to Abu Ghari, uh, the notorious uh, prison where some uh, American soldiers began to uh, abuse and lynch uh, some of the um, Iraqi prisoners of war. Uh, I, I didn't condone that. Uh, uh, I think each one who was there in the area and knew about it, they should be held accountable and prosecuted because what that did was that you gave Mokhtar Asar more ammunition to uh, incite and, and inflame the uh, the anti-American uh, and, and put our lives uh, at more risk. It's kind of an odd historical circumstance that we wind up, Americans, self-appointing ourselves as the world policemen due to historical contingency. And yet, we don't really understand other countries, despite being a nation of immigrants. And so we went into a situation, and, you know, long-term, you could have predicted you're going to empower the Shiite majority or the Shia majority in Iraq, and ultimately they would wind up tilting toward Iran. And geopolitically, it didn't work out the way anyone thought it would well, the way it was proposed, it was supposed to work out. Yeah, but I mean, the the one thing that I, I still think, um, I guess as a, as a silver lining, is that it, it, it's democracy still there. It, it didn't uh, fell apart like the, it did in Afghanistan with back uh, behind the, the, the scene or backdoor deals. Uh, made with the government, uh, uh, I mean, against the government, uh, kind of like what uh, the former president was trying to do before he left, uh, and between him and the Taliban, and then lead the con the government of that country uh, blindsided. You know, you had to, if you're going to leave that country in, in, in a position after you invade them, maybe you should uh, have a, include the stake all the stakeholders, not just that that the two main uh, antagonism to each other. So I think that was a very you know set up for failure in, in Afghanistan because prior that agreement, everything was a little a lot more stable. And when you release five thousand uh, rebels or insurgents, and then you uh, leave. We withdraw some of your uh, resources, uh, personnel to uh, not, you know, based on an agreement that, you know, they're not going to attack you until you leave or they're not going to attack the government until you leave. So it's kind of like setting that government for failure. And I think right now the uh, Iraqis uh, government, it, it's not, I, you know, the perfect, but guess what? Neither is ours. And they're, despite all the challenges that they have and the, despite everything that we did, 
it has remained, uh, you know, kind of like a power sharing government uh, over the years. Uh, you know, could they do better to support us? Yes, uh, in the region. But, you know, it's, it's a lot more intricate than uh, either you or myself could probably understand because we had the culture, the religious differences. There's a lot of things that comes into play. And I think, uh, you know, what I get from my service there in Iraq is that at least I help uh, create a sustainable uh, government uh, as, as of right now still in place. And there's perhaps some irony in that uh, for arguably the current government is more stable than many of the other governments in, in the region. And of yeah. course, if they're going to be democratic, they're not going to do, they're not going to be a puppet state and do exactly what we said. I mean, so, they, they they might be, uh, they're not as, uh, you know, religious or like uh, set in terms of the government. It's not uh, autocrats uh, like Iran, uh, authoritarian, but, you know, it has a lot more liberty. The population itself is a lot more, um, uh, what do you, you call it? <laughs> missing the, the right word, uh, secular, um, I guess. It, it's, it's more uh, freely because they have been exposed a lot longer to uh, a lot more freedom. Uh, and, and like I said, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, I did what I was supposed to uh, based on what my uh, job description was at that time. I, did I try to improve people's lives? Yes, as I speak uh, in... Um, in my book, American Shield, um, there are certain, certain uh, incidents where I see that there were uh, misbehavior by our own coalition soldiers, our own American soldiers, and uh, kind of like being in, uh, inhumane to certain people. So I address that according to what I, the way I saw fit, and I tried to stop them because at the end of the day, um, I saw that if we mistreat these people, uh, people who are, we are um, in their country, they will see us even uh, harsher and, and be, be and try to take reprisals because at the end of the day, you wouldn't want nobody to um, go to your house right now and tell you what to do and mistreat you in your own house. Uh, it, it's, it's insane. And, and I, I, I thought at that time that having some of those soldiers mistreating and abusing uh, the Iraqi population was detrimental to a purpose there. Now, no, eloquently put, and of course, there's always a question, you know, if someone were to invade the United States, how long would we resist them? Um, yeah. So I mean, you, the final I'm chapter. Sure, I'm sure it'll be from day one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was day one till the, the you know, final chapter in Iraq hasn't hasn't been written yet. And so um, I, I like the fact that you you focus on the silver lining and the the possibility of, of hopefulness yeah. that um, you know perhaps uh, there will be the the dem democratization of the region that was kind of promised but you know never realized. I mean, there's, um, a, there's a lot of things that, that are at play, you know, especially the Israeli-Palestinian issue is one of the main driving source of um, animosity or um, towards the uh, different countries, different groups. 
Uh, and even towards us, because at the end of the day, we are supporting Israel. We provide them a lot of um, financial aid and also military aid. Uh, so, the, you know, um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, three soldiers were killed. American soldiers were killed because of the way for, for them to get to us, you know, as a, in Iraq, uh, in a base so that, you know, is it, far away from the Israeli-Palestinians uh, border or conflict. But nevertheless, the people who want that conflict to end or things to get better in, in that region, they see us uh, as an impediment sometimes and not very helpful. So it's a lot of things that, that you know, all you have to do is, uh, in my opinion, is, uh, you know, try to work things out and, and uh, the best we can and manage it. I mean, it can be 100% um, uh, protecting everybody, but there are certain things we could do to mitigate or reduce the likelihood that certain things happen. And uh, I hope that uh, all the governments in the region uh, try to do that. And one of the things I also I think when looking about the silver lining is that you're you're very open about some of the adversity you personally face um, dealing with um, combat stress or uh, you talk about some hazing that seemed really over the top uh, from another NCO um, who is in your chain of command. Um, I mean, do you think that people generally, military veterans? Um, law enforcement, what would you be your message to be for people looking for that support that they need? I mean, I, I the way I see uh, joining the military and, and being a police officer there, I think that it's a calling, it's not for everybody. Uh, I remember when I joined in, uh, there were people that were almost trying to kill themselves at the uh, MEPS, which is a military entrance uh, processing uh, station. Um, you know, they were trying to hang themselves with with uh, uh, of, um, bed sheets or hangers and things like that. And some of them, they, they fail uh, doing that. But nevertheless, I saw a couple of uh, ambulances of, uh, taking those uh, people because they were not ready or they were uh, forced to do those things. Um, for me, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm here. I got to make the best out of it. So uh, it is a calling for it and not everybody could do it. Um, did, did that prepare me for a lot of things? Yes. Was I prepared for some of those things already? Yes. Because uh, growing up with a lot of things in, in another country, um, that prepared me for uh, endure some of the hazing, like you said, uh, or the verbal abuse. Um, you know, nowadays I, I don't know now how the the uh, joining the military is or basic training. But the last time I heard was that now people have uh, a, a stress card. Like you present that to your to your drill sergeant and say, you know what, uh, I'm stressed. You're stressing me out too much. Back then, they would just smack you in the head with it. <laughs> You're like, what the hell? But, you know, again, uh, uh, things changes over the time, and I think it's for the better. Um, you know, one thing that I, I learned was that they were trying to teach me something. They were trying to make me a soldier, not, not be 
a civilian with uh, some complexity of, uh, you know, I want my mommy or something like that. <laughs> so, but, you know, just try and make you a soldier or in um, uh, that way, when you face hardship, you are able to overcome it. And we're back with Sergeant Gunnell. So after you re return from, from Iraq, um, you make a decision to join the Capitol Police. And um, you actually applied to a number of different departments. Um, you, you had an interaction as, as a kid on a school trip to the Capitol where you had a, a very positive interaction with a, a member of the Capitol Police. Do you think that just sort of, was that sitting in the back of your mind all those years or...? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it was a uh, very natural, uh, natural um, and positive uh, interaction with him. Um, you know, all most of my interaction before that had been kind of like negative towards police, uh, especially in the Dominican Republic at that time. Uh, and that was it was nice uh, that, that he kind of like instead of being. Uh, mean about it he <clears throat> he was just kind of like a tourist uh guy and, and helping us uh uh with any questions that i have and he interrupted even uh in, in spanish a little bit which helped a lot uh to for me to uh be more friendly towards towards him and i was drawn to some of the things that he was doing uh to assist us i think there's something about um People from New York have a lot of stuff in their pockets. Made yeah. a little bit of a joke and he was in line. <laughs> any, any subway tokens or? Yeah, back then they we had a lot of uh, you know, they instead of being MetroCard, they, they they had the the tokens, coins. Um, I had a lot of candies in my in my pockets. Uh, a lot, a couple of things, uh, <laughs> keys, and uh, there's kind of like a kind of like a, a give give giveaway. Uh, for uh, signal for him to guess where we were from. So, um, but I did take the that that moment to to keep it, I guess, in the back of my mind for in the future. Uh, maybe that is something that I will do. But uh, it took me a long time for me to realize that that's that that's what I what uh, what I wanted to to do. Um, by the time I realized that. I already had grown up, uh, become a, a young adult, uh, going to war and return. Uh, and, you know, about nine, I mean, that was in, that was in 90, I came back in 2000, 2004, uh, five. So it took me a long time for me to realize that, I, I guess almost nine years. Um, and by the time I realized it, you know, I'm like, this is it, that it's something that will help me. Um, at that time, I was dating somebody that I thought, you know, she, you know, I had been exposed also to some other relatives and, and my girlfriend at that time, brother was a police officer. So a lot of, a lot of signals were, uh, oh, hey, you should do this, be a police officer. Uh, because all the people are doing it around you, and maybe that is something that I I should have been considering, and I did. Um, uh, fortunately, I was able to to uh, to apply for several um, 
police department in, in the region uh, before I left to Iraq. And my cousin, as I mentioned in the book, American Shield, he's the one who reminded me that I already had uh, applied for uh, Capitol Police. And he encouraged me to call them and see if, uh, the status uh, and find out the status of my application. Uh, and once I did that, they they told me that I would, that I already passed the, the test, and so it wasn't. Uh, I I didn't hesitate to, to to uh, make the decision and and move down here, even even though I didn't know uh, anybody in the area. I I was just accustomed to make those drastic changes on my own uh, in my life from moving uh, from part of where my grandparents were where they they needed me back then to moving here to the United States to join in the military and go pack in and go. So I was used to moving around, just pack pack my stuff and go. And that's and what I do. You you're moving to a place where nobody's really from the area anyway, right? I mean yeah <laughs> there are people from all over the country. Yeah. Um, one of the things that is striking is so were you, when you went to the Capitol Police, was that your only job? You, was this the first time in your life you had just one job? Yeah. I mean, I had all the jobs before, but, uh, you know, like I mentioned to you earlier, I was doing the car wash, the mechanic, um, the tire tech, uh, the um, security guard, selling my mom's food door to door. Uh, but the main... Uh, I also was uh, an uh, IA uh, resident assistant in 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 college as well. Uh, in order for me to to uh, receive a scholarship or a grant, so I was doing multiple things. But nevertheless, this was the major, the first major job that I landed, um, and I was happy for it. So. Yeah, that's actually one of the themes, actually. I kind of got hungry at parts of reading, reading your book. You described food so many times, and it made me really curious about Dominican cuisine. Um, is your, your mother's restaurant still ongoing in Pennsylvania? No, no. It's, she, uh, she had, we, we sold it uh, back then because when I became a police officer, it became a lot harder for them to maintain it. I was the one... Um, that I was helping a lot in terms of managing it. And uh, uh, so I ended up, not on, I was unable to continue that because it was kind of like uh, my job as a police officer, they they required me to focus only on uh, being a police officer and in order for you to um, have a another job, you need to get clearance from the Capitol Police uh, to do outside work. And to me, that was uh, a lot harder to, uh, it became at one point that in order for me to do uh, something or submit a document, I needed to travel over there uh, three or four hours, just one way, just to get that done and then come back. So it was a lot hectic and, and burdensome for me. So I ended up, we ended up selling it. So but the food, the food itself, uh, it was, I learned how to cook early on. Uh, I I remember <laughs> when I was in Iraq, there was a lot of uh, soldiers that were homesick. Uh, and I'm like, here I am. I just told my, my uh, some of my friends, just send me 
send me this ingredients and they did on a care package or I bought some of those things at the PX. And then here I am making my own favorite food. And meanwhile, everybody else is homesick because they miss their home cooking. And I was able to to avoid that. Were you able to introduce anybody to uh, to your food, your cuisine? Yeah, I mean, that's how I met uh, Jimmy Prendergrass. I mean, he's not, I didn't go into details how we met, but uh, in the book, but uh, there's a lot of officers, I mean, so soldiers at that time. Uh, they were Latino. We used to hang out in uh, Prendergrass uh, area, cooking stuff like that. So, I always say, if you if you like to eat, you should learn know how to cook. Otherwise, exactly. you're dependent on other people to cook for you. Exactly, exactly. And and I'm, I have been one of those people that you know, uh, part of one of the things that like I, like I said earlier is like I just pack and go. There's certain things that I just do myself and. If there's nobody else to do it for me, I'll do it myself. And I learned how to cook at an early age. Um, you know, like watching my ma my mom and my dad or my brother cooking at the restaurants they have in the past. And I use those uh, experiences and learning. If it if it didn't come out right the first time, then I tried to change a little things and or call my mom and say, how do you do this? That, now I don't have to, but back then I, especially when I moved here to, uh, Virginia, uh, in, uh, right before I, uh, when I became a police officer, I was calling her a lot, trying to learn how to, uh, pro uh, cook certain things because I wanted to impress a girl or just sustain myself. Uh, or, uh, like I said in the book, American Shield, I mean, I learned, uh, instead of partying at the police academy, I began cooking to, uh, uh, to, for my colleagues. Uh, so, so we could study and have like a group uh, studying group, uh, and I was making uh, the empanadas, the patelitos, and cooking all this stuff. So it was uh, I learned how to do it those things my own. And was that in, uh, Glencoe, Georgia? Yeah, Glencoe, Georgia. So that's uh, was it six weeks? No, uh, it was, I think it was three months. Three months over there, and three months here. Uh, our our um, Police academy is, uh, is was very long. So the whole process is about a year. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite kind of remarkable to me that you you know, that that seems like a long time to be putting people up in hotel rooms and and you describe it as, as being very uh, difficult. Uh, I mean the other uh, so uh, officer that, that time they did not all of us got into the new nice uh, um, hotel-like, uh, you know, uh, lodging, but uh, it was it was hard still. I mean, you have, you know, learning some of the things uh, like I, I describe in the book, um, you know, getting along, learning a new language or uh, uh, police, policing, police uh, language and things like that. So it was very hard for me uh, at that time because I didn't know uh, I didn't have we didn't have a lot of resources back then so it was, it was very hard and there's there's one point in the book where your trainer is talking about watch out for those veterans because they uh you know and you, you took exception to, to his characterization yeah I mean it's, it's he he like 
when I got there, I let it slide a couple of times. And I'm like, okay, now he's continuing going back. I'm a better myself. And the way he was using it was very derogatory in terms of like, look, they are the bad guys. They come back all messed up from Iraq or the war. And here they are going to shoot somebody or uh, they didn't approve their benefits, uh, but the VA didn't approve it. And he, he is the veteran trying to uh, commit a crime. And I'm like, dude, you know, why don't you say the bad guy instead? Or, uh, you know, I'm a veteran myself. I have PTSD. Do you see me doing those things? How 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 will you feel if I call you cracker? You know, so, so I became a lot more assertive because I I'd seen what happened when you remain silent and I wasn't trying to um I was I wasn't the only uh, I think I was the only uh veterans there but there were other people in the military then and I didn't like that that everybody else stayed remained quiet. Yeah that's a, a negative stereotype that's been at least since Vietnam if not before. And uh, you would think that people with veterans' preference, there's a lot of people in federal law enforcement. Yeah. You think that they would not be part of the something? Well, that's well, that's that's a, the difference between somebody who's been in the military and somebody who has not. Uh, you know, they they people who don't never serve don't understand the sacrifices and things that the soldiers go to, which is why I I think the that former President Trump right now like. I think yesterday he said something derogatory about Nikki Haley's uh, husband, like uh, insinuating, where is he, where is he? Well, if you know that her husband is in the military, he's serving overseas, protecting this country. I mean, I don't I don't align too much with some, uh, some of the policies or ideology of uh, Nikki Haley, but to me, that's attacking a veteran, a former, uh, somebody who's currently defending the country and I you know if if I don't agree with anything if I if I agree with anything that'll be that um his her her husband shouldn't be um criticized for defending this country in the way that he's doing it by somebody who never never put on put on the uniform uh, and would never know what is to defend this country or sacrifice uh, you know um your career, your life, and put yourself in, in harm's way to uh, defend this country. Um, I tell people a lot, a lot of people that, and I hope people understand this and 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 see it. Uh, but given the current influence that the foreign president has on them, they forget that this person never served. He dodged the draft multiple times. And myself and uh, maybe Nikki Haley's husband is more likely to uh, jump into the house on fire or put themselves, uh, like myself, in front of the danger just to protect them rather than the other guy. Uh, I think if 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 you have a situation or you know a, a hypothetical or not. You know, if your house is on fire, I'm more likely to go into the fire, try to rescue you rather than former Donald Trump, uh, former President Donald Trump, because what he would do is he put up a uh, bring a, a, a gallon of uh, gasoline and pour it on, your, on you and then say, look, beautiful fire, beautiful fire rather than rescue you. So 
uh, people need to understand that what we do, the way same thing uh, as a police officer, as a military member, we do things because it's our calling and we want to make things better, not just because I'm pretending to be somebody who, who uh, is not going to come through if something were to happen. And it, yeah, it's not just him. I, no one in his entire family has ever served. His mother was an immigrant. He demonizes immigrants all the time. And he's talking about her husband who's deployed in Africa. No one's seen where his own wife is quite some time. <laughs> well, well, I don't know. I, I mean, that's that's on them. I know him for continuing to support her. I know is like I said, if anything, I if I agree with anything that Haley, uh, Nikki Haley has, or is that her husband is in in the military, he's protecting our country. Uh, whether uh, there's a differences in politics or ideology, uh, that's that's irrelevant. We're all Americans, and to attack a serving member of the military simply on the basis of the fact that they're deployed to another country, another continent, seems very strange. And I'm sure Africa is not easy duty either. It's just really odd. I mean, but the thing is that this is coming from somebody who claimed to be supportive of the military, claiming somebody who's, who's a uh, supportive of the police officer, somebody who's, um, it's, um, uh, support of the rule of law, law and order, and yet they continue to de uh, desecrate and, and uh, the sacrifices that everybody else does for this country. And he thinks he's um, the best things, the best thing since sliced bread. And he's he's uh, above every reproach. Uh, he's the way he sees himself is like, look, this is Jesus, and here I am above Jesus, and that's that's scary uh, because uh, and, and the people he has plenty of people that follow him uh, or only listen to what he says, and they they had relinquished any sense of will, self will, uh, to actually uh, think for themselves, and and, and that's scary because. At the end of the day, uh, if he tells them your own eyes and ears are lying to you, they're gonna they're gonna <laughs> believe that, and that's that's sad because one plus one is equal two, not six, not ten. Uh, and if you cannot believe your own um, your own eyes or listen to what he says on a daily basis, uh, and <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, I don't. Well, in his own mind, he has had the most amazing military career. He did go to military school because he got kicked out of every other school. And the, the idea that he would ever follow the chain of command and obey orders, not it's not in his character. Right? No, I mean, you have somebody who wants to be a dictator, even for, the, for a day. That's, that's scary. Uh, because... If, if he becomes a dictator for a day, what is there to stop? Who's going to stop him from doing, continue re remain there as a dictator? Uh, somebody who continued, uh, say, derogatory things uh, or to, towards the military, somebody who doesn't appreciate the sacrifices of those who were win wounded uh, in combat, in battle. Uh, he, he wants um, to be kind of like the North Korean, a dictator.
uh, you know, everybody stand up by attention and salute him and all that. And it's kind of like, you know, really, that's 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 your role model. That's that's what you want people to see you uh, pretending to be strong, pretending to be, um, um, you know, good. You're not. But, you know, uh, you know, people going to make the decisions. I'm not going to go into what other people should do or not. Uh, that's on them. I know I did what I did on, especially on January 6th. I defended the Capitol uh, on January 6th. I, it took me a long, it was a long day for me. Uh, from early on in the morning, uh, I got to, to the Capitol at around 6 a.m. And I didn't go home on, until January 7th at 3 a.m. Uh, and I got home at 4. Uh, that is commitment that I did at that time. I didn't uh, I did everything possible to defend and protect those who were uh, behind me, including my colleagues and the very same elected officials that now deny what happened. Uh, I don't regret it. Uh, it was was it easy for me? No, it was it was very dangerous. Uh, I almost lost my life uh, multiple times. Um, more than forty people attacked me. Uh, multiple, sometimes uh, simultaneously, sometimes individually. Uh, and those are the only ones that I've seen so far uh, in videos and pictures. There are still people who has not been identified that attack me uh, or being arrested. So it's ongoing. January 6th has not ended for me, uh, especially when you have the same elected officials who were taking cover behind me and my colleagues or use the sacrifices that we did or by with our actions uh, to um, downplay what happened on January 6th by calling these individuals uh, political prisoners, uh, hostages, um, prisoner of, uh, um, you know, prisoner, peaceful prisoner, protester, whatever connotation they, they want to use. If those people were those things, then who are we on their version of what happened on January 6th? Were we the bad guys? Were we because we stopped them? Were we the hostage taker? We were, were we the sequesters, the sicarios? How do they see us uh, in, in their mind on January 6th? They see us as an instigator, not the people who were protecting uh, and keeping their oath or somebody who was entitled and had the authority to be there because those people who were invaded the Capitol, they didn't have the authority to be there. They breached the Capitol and they used multiple, uh, multiple ways to breach uh, and enter uh, the Capitol police line uh, and Capitol uh, complex. Um, some of them were assaulting police officers. So multiple layers of security were in place and they all uh, overwhelmed. Um, they would succeed in uh, protecting the captain to prevent the, the, the breach from happening? No, but we did su succeed in terms of keeping everybody uh, out of harm and evacuate the area and keep them um, being able to, for, uh, keeping it secure enough for them to come back and do their duties. Um, despite the injuries, despite the, the torment that we went on that day, and now you had uh, 
all these individuals say, you know, the hostages and this and this and that. Uh, okay. Um, you were not saying those things on January 6th when you were running for your lives. You were not saying that when, when you were uh, trying helping barricade the chambers or running to your refuge room uh, or evacuating the Capitol. Um, you're only saying that because Donald Trump is telling you to say those things. And, you know, you they said they tend to forget that the fear the way feeling that day. The only reason why they didn't get hurt was because action like uh, that we did, like uh, officers like myself uh, did on January 6th. I'm not taking credit for everything that I did, from that everybody else did, but uh, myself and my colleagues, we did a lot of things to prevent harm on them. And now here they are, siding with uh, the insurrectionists, uh, people who are trying to uh, hunt them down room by room to kill them, to murder them, to hurt their colleagues and, and prevent our democracy from continuing to work. There was a uh, constitutional process going on at that time, duty. Their duty was to certify the election. And that's what they were trying to stop. Our very system of governance was threatened because you had Donald Trump and his allies uh, ready to um, declare martial law if things got out of hand. And I think that's what one of the reasons why uh, they incited the, the people to go over there. What they didn't count on was that we, the police officers, were going to show restraint. Uh, had we not done that, it would have been it would have been a different story that, that would have allowed him and his uh, allies to declare martial law, and therefore uh, creating a constitutional crisis where where um, he would have remained in power. You know, uh, I did whatever I did. I got injured on my hand. Uh, my right hand is my first. That, that, that was the first injury I sustained. Um, my right foot was uh, hurt, uh, injured as well. Uh, that requires surgery. My left shoulder requires surgery, uh, dislocated in a tear, a muscle tear. Um, by the time everything ended up, both my hands were bleeding. I was bruised, I was uh, beaten. I was injured. I required surgery uh, for two of the main, uh, most severe injuries. But then you had the the PTSD re reactivated from my time in Iraq. So it's another different type of uh, trauma, uh, but nevertheless, it, it, it made it worse. And then you had the other injury, uh, um, the moral injury, because after at the end of uh, of all, I did what I was supposed to do. I did my job. I kept my oath. And I, despite all that, um, you had the same elected officials now saying that nothing happened. And if it did happen, it was not as bad as I said it happened. But they're only saying those things because they were able to go home to their family with the actions that I did and my colleagues. They didn't get hurt. They didn't get uh, trampled. They did not get a one nail uh, splinter of them. They were not roughed off. And I think if 
one or two of them would have had gotten beat up, maybe they would have had to say something different. Maybe they would be saying things different now. But they didn't because the actions, the action that myself and my colleagues took prevent them from getting hurt. Um, and I expected them to do their job. Um, kind of like what they, happened after 9-11 when the whole country uh, rallied together and and, and uh, did something to to prevent this and, and, and uh, come together and, and, and know who was responsible and hold those people accountable. Uh, if you listen today, uh, the news and the media, you know, depending what's solve the issue you want it's like night and day this happened that didn't happen and therefore uh you are a liar uh you know had it been black Lives matters or any other group that i protect those people those elected officials from i would have been held as a hero i'll be uh i'll be talking i'll be parading i'll be uh, on every show, on their show, every single day. But because I don't, uh, they don't want to talk to me. They will never speak to me about it. And when they do speak about certain things, uh, they're only trying to down downplay my injuries, try to downplay what happened, uh, try to attack my character because I'm not saying those things. And, you know, for, for those people who claim that they are pro-law enforcement officers, uh, pro-law and order, uh, the rule of law. Uh, you cannot be pro all those things, uh, support those things only when it's uh, suitable for you or when it's convenient. I did what I was supposed to. I kept my oath and I would have done that if it was another group, if it was if that group of uh, insurrectionists or attackers were uh, Hillary Clinton supporter or Joe Biden supporter, I would have done the same thing. Uh, because it's my job. It was my job to to protect whoever was in there. I didn't ask, well, are you, it's kind of like a bullet. A bullet, you shoot a bullet towards somebody, the bullet is not going to ask you, are you Republican, Democrat, gay, straight? You know, it's just, just going to hit the target. And The mob was the bullet. And the, ma the mob was the bullet. And, and, and that's what we tried to do, protect whoever was behind us. Now, I want to thank you and all the other USCP and MPD officers who did that that day. Um, is is this part of your healing process, continuing to be a truth teller? Yes, of course. I mean, that's one thing that, uh, that's one of the reasons why I did the book uh, as well, The American Shield, or this, uh, you know, the sergeant who, immigrant sergeant who defended the democracy. It's because after I gave testimony to the to Congress, uh, to the January 6th committee. There were a lot of people saying certain things about me that it never happened or didn't happen, uh, or they did happen, but not the way that they did. So they were putting a narrative about uh, me, about my character and who I am and what I had done for this country uh, that I didn't like. And so I wanted to tell my story the way I wanted, uh, on my own core. And as painful as it was for me to rewatch some of the videos and, and pictures and things and reliving uh, those uh, events on that day, I wanted my story to be told the right way. And that's what I did in my book, American Shield. Um, I hope that people do read it. I do hope that people get to learn something from it um, and also understand 
the sacrifices that I had done for this country. Uh, because if it wasn't because of January 6th, nobody had uh, but my family and, and my friends we had known everything that I had done for this country. Um, you know, especially uh, in the military, especially since I got here to the United States, and mainly most about January 6th, uh, because uh, there were many officers who remained silent despite their injuries. There are many people who had chosen to not to speak up because they had seen um, the way we have been treated. And I think me becoming, continue to be outspoken about it, telling my story, it had helped me to heal. Uh, as you can see, I'm talking to you in a better, uh, more collected, um, uh, you know, my initial um, in interview was, uh, you probably see me very emotional, very, um, you know, reliving, trauma traumatized. But now I'm, I had gotten treatment for my PTSD. I continue to get treatment for my PTSD, but it's easier. All dep it all depends on on the topic, the time of the my whole day, and who I'm talking to. Uh, that it gets triggered. You know, one one thing is that continue being an issue is that when people elect officials don't play, what happened? I, I, again, you have elected officials who will risk our lives to protect them. And here they are siding with the uh, uh, insurrectionists going to the Department of Justice and say, well, these people should be released because they were not hurting anybody. Well, they did. They have been convicted of multiple felonies and crimes uh, in a uh, by a jury or by the court. So they have been found guilty about doing the same things. And, you know, they could say whatever they want to, they could, uh, but that's not going to change that they, what they did to me. Because I tried to do my job, because I did my job the way, because I kept my oath, I defended everybody in there. I sustained multiple injuries uh, to the point that uh, I can couldn't continue doing my work, but yet I continue to fight through the pain I continue to do multiple uh, tours of duty after January 6th, uh, then to, in order for me to try to protect everybody and then care for me later on. And, and whether they see that as a positive or not, that's on them. I know that what I did was the right thing to do. I felt compelled to do that because there were reports that uh, the mob was coming back with with firearms and, and for round two. There were uh, other things that were considered and I wanted to be there because I, I was not just protecting um, the members of Congress and, and, and the Capitol. I was uh, protecting our own future, our very uh, system of governance. I told my wife uh, one day, because uh, on January 7th, uh, she thought I was going to the hospital to tend to my wounds. And I said, no, I'm going to the Capitol. Uh, there's a lot of things going on. And she got upset at me uh, because of that. I I grabbed my things and as injured as I was, I got in, into the car, limping around and head back to the Capitol. Uh, about a year or so ago, we had a conversation 
Uh, and I asked her, do you, I don't know how the conversation came about, but I asked her, do you remember when that I was, I, I picked my stuff and go? And she said, yes, I'm still mad at you for that. Um, and I, I explained to her, that, look, I wasn't thinking about me. I was thinking about you and your future and my son. Because if I, had I not done those things, and my fear was that those people were coming back to the Capitol and finished the, what they started. At least I would have been able to do something to protect them and whatever led things would fall wherever they were, they, they will fall. But I wasn't even thinking about myself, I was thinking about their own future. And if I that meant putting my lives on the line once more to protect them and giving them a better shot of that, then so be it. A um, couple of months ago, uh, my wife finally became a U.S. citizen. Um, I don't think that uh, had it not been because of the actions that I did on January 6th, I don't think we had even the opportunity for her to to apply for the citizenship. Um, I'm not saying that they were that they granted her citizenship because of what I did. I'm saying that she had the opportunity to to apply and she was granted uh, citizenship. She passed the test and all the stuff that, but, you know, if there was a coup and if that they had succeeded, uh, would we had our democracy at all? I doubt that. And I don't think, uh, so it was a little more meaningful for me, for her, that she sees some of the uh, benefits of remaining and keeping this country as a democracy as it is now. I want to thank you. Congratulations for your wife becoming a citizen. And also, I really want to thank you so much for everything you did on January 6th and continuously. The book is American Shield by Sergeant Gunnell. I recommend that everybody uh, obtain a copy. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I learned some, some new things that I did not know before. Um, and and, and there's this this one other thing. The book is, all, is also... Uh, uh, available in Spanish in both uh, audio and, and uh, hard copy. I helped translate it myself. So it's, it's a very good quality, easy reading. It's called uh, Escudo Americano, uh, El Sargento Inmigrante que Defendió la Democracia. Uh, the same thing is in English um, in both uh, uh, platform, uh, audio and hard copy. And if you do happen to, to read it, uh, or get it uh, for your friend, for your colleagues, and even for your um, Republican friends. Give it to them, because at the end of the day, I ho they, hopefully they'll read it and see that the sacrifices were done. And if not, at least they will have it for uh, to prop the door or, or a table. Uh, and, but if you do happen to get it, uh, please review it. Uh, it goes a long way. And also share with your friends and family as well. At the end of the day, what I did on January 6th and before and after, it has not been because I won accolades. It has been done because uh, it was my job and I did my duty. I did what I was supposed to. If people recognize, want to recognize me for those things, great. But uh, I was just simply doing my job. And I hope that people see it that way, that that's what I was required me. And if it has been any other group, any other um, other situation, I probably had done the same thing and, and kept my my uh, my oath.